Um, but before we dive into this this morning, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Christoph. I'm the minister to youth and families here at Faith and, and one of the pastors. And so um, I'm blessed to be able to serve the youth. And every once in a while, I get the opportunity um, to go through God's word with you. And like I said, this morning, we are going to be in James chapter 2. Now, I know Jay, uh, Jay, Pastor Jay, has given the context to James the last couple of weeks as we went through James chapter 1, but I want to go through and highlight just a few of, uh, of those things before we dive into James chapter 2, because I think it's important for us to have some context as we spend time in this passage. So James was written by Jesus's half-brother, James, and it serves as a letter so this, this was a letter, um, but it reads more like wisdom literature. And what I mean by that is that James, um, while, this was being, while this letter was being written to be read in churches um, throughout the early years of the church, um, it reads more like um, the Proverbs or even like the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, James draws from the Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount quite a bit um, throughout these passages. And this one specifically, James chapter 2, has heavy parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to highlight a few of those as we go through it. Um, but what we're going to do first is we are going to read through James chapter 2, 1 through 13, and then we'll pray, and then we will break it down. So James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet, have you not made a distinction among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you were really to fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend our time in James chapter 2 this morning, I pray that, I pray that we would hear from you. We would hear your voice. And I feel like it is so easy to read passages like these and to think that it is because of the things we do we are seen as right in your eyes, but we know that there is nothing we could do to be seen as right in your eyes. It is only by the work your son Jesus did on the cross that we are seen as right. Father, I pray this morning for those who need to be convicted. I pray that you would bring conviction, but it would be seen as an act of mercy as your word reminds us, God, I pray that we would feel that conviction and we would know that it is your mercy and it is your kindness that brings us to repentance. I pray that we would lay it at your feet and that you would help us to grow to look more like you. 
God, I pray that you would use this body of people to be salt and light in their homes, in their communities, in their workplaces. Father, I pray that you would help me to stand out of the way of the scripture, and God, that you would speak clearly. We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so earlier this year, we did a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew's Gospel. And you may remember that there was a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has this particular, uh, particular paradigm for addressing the crowd. Jesus would say, you have heard it was said, and then he would reference Scripture. He would then point out how this Scripture was often twisted by the religious elites of the time to justify their own hypocrisy and shame others for the actions they've committed. And after addressing the hypocrisy, Jesus would often point out how the law that they were referencing was actually far deeper than the actual action that they were trying to hold people to. He would point out that sin had deep roots in their hearts that needed to be addressed. In James chapter 2, James is teaching in a very similar way to Jesus. James is interested in digging down deep into the heart on the issue of partiality, not just specific actions or instances. And what I love about James' teaching is I have spent my week just saturated in James and reading James and praying is that James reads so much like Jesus. You can tell that James just wanted to teach as Jesus taught, that he was, he was saturated in Jesus' teaching, and he wanted the church to look more like Jesus. With that in mind, let's talk partiality. What is partiality? I think a fair definition is to say partiality is an unfair or biased favoritism towards someone. And the partiality that James is talking about here specifically in this passage is a distinctly and uniquely Christian one. So check this out. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Who is James addressing? brothers, sisters in the Lord, the family of Christ. He is telling them that as they hold tight to their faith, as they run this race, as they work out their faith, that they are to show no partiality. Now, he could have very easily just said, show no partiality, and then moved on to the next sentence. So that begs the question, why did he sandwich the imperative of this sentence or the command to show no partiality between the qualifiers of the family and with their pursuit of Jesus. This morning, I want to pose that it is because of the work that God has done in us that we cannot show partiality. It is a uniquely and distinctly Christian trait. James is going to give a very specific example of how they could or were being partial. But I believe that he starts this section to show that it is distinctly Christian. You see, the world makes its judgments on others based upon the external. But for the Christian, we know that the value of a person is not based upon external measures or merits, but rather the one who created them. Christians know that the value of a person is centered on the truth that they were created in the image of God. The value of a person from the world's perspective 
can often be weighed on an external scale. I decided to go on Google and look up, um, I just decided to Google measurements of a good life, just to kind of see what are they saying right now is a good life? What are the metrics for a good life? And here are some of the things that, um, just a few different articles, I took a few different things. They said, this, these are the things that me- are the measurements. These are the metrics. Um, one was income and wealth. So same as James is about to approach here, um, finances. Two, work balance or schedule, work-life balance or schedule. Um, three, your house or where you live. Four, your education, uh, your social connections, or your social and civic engagement. Also, your subjective well-being, which, listen, if I'm going to be honest with you, with you right now as a Chicago Bears fan, my social well-being is like a little bit rocky, so please pray for me, okay? <laughs> These are the things that the world says your value is based upon. Now, when we're talking about the sin of partiality, when we're talking about us, the church, in our pursuit of Christ, we are talking about using the metrics of the world to determine the value of others. We are disregarding God's standard, and we are embracing the world's standards. And this is so broken so broken. We know that our value, our identity, who we are is based upon the very image of God that we were created in, not external worldly metrics. And if we truly know this, if we truly know this down in our soul, that we are sons and daughter of God, then we have no reason than to view others by any other lens. We need to constantly be reminded of this. We constantly need course correction on this. So James, in approaching the church to teach them, he gives an illustration. James 2, 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while the poor man, you say, sit, uh, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made the distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is giving an example of partiality using the metric of wealth. And so I just want to remind you that James's letter is to kind of be read a little bit more like a proverb or teaching, and maybe not necessarily a specific letter or context. But even with that being the case, I don't think it is crazy for us to read this illustration and believe it. It's pretty easy to read this as a reality. I want to paint maybe a little bit of a different picture, though. I want to maybe pose a little bit of a different illustration, one that might be a little bit... Um, more real for our context. Not saying that this isn't real. I'm not saying this doesn't happen, but um, I do want to paint a picture. And by the way, when I, when I, when I read this or when I, um, when I give you this illustration, I didn't necessarily have families in mind. So if you're thinking this is me, not who I'm thinking of, but um, I, I want you to think about this. You walk in to church on a Sunday morning and there are two families who walk in. Neither have been here in the past and so you notice them. One is a well-known family in the community. They're business owners, they're actively involved within the community, and the other family is a single mom or a single dad and and their kids, and they're relatively unknown. The kids seem to struggle a little bit with sitting still. And And on the first week that they come in, you greet them. You greet both of them, big smiles, you introduce yourself, you go out of your way to talk to them. 
The second week, both families come in. You go out of your way to find the well-known family. You give them a big smile and a hug and you welcome them back. You sit there and you talk with them for 15, 20 minutes. And then the single parent with their kids walks by and you give them kind of the classic Midwestern smile and a nod. They walk by and they sit down. Then on the third week, once again, both the families are here again. And the well-known family in the community, you go out of your way to talk to them. Maybe you invite them over for dinner later that evening. And once again, the single parent, the kids, walks by and you give them the classic Midwestern smile in a nod. You see, we might not necessarily have seats of honor here in worship, but we do have seats of honor in terms of our attention. We do have seats of honor in our homes. We do have seats of honor at our dinner tables. And, and I speak this going, I have been guilty of this. I have been guilty of it. I'm just confessing that, knowing that there have been times when I have used worldly metrics by which I have given my attention and, and, and my honor to people because of worldly metrics. Maybe if we took the illustration a little bit further and we said that you knew that the well-known family had a lot of money and they loved to give to nonprofits, and you thought to yourself, you justified the fact that you were giving all this attention to thinking, man, imagine all this family could do to help us accomplish if they gave to the church. Imagine the ministries we could put together and accomplish. And the attention is to further the kingdom. But this isn't the way of God's kingdom. God uses the poor, the broken, the wounded to reveal his grace and goodness and mercy. Partiality doesn't always come from financial metrics either. I think it can be really easy because we oftentimes want to just take what's on the paper and just go, well, that's it. Just as long as I'm not judging people based upon money, then I'm doing all right. But there are so many other ways that we show partiality. Think of those who have been ignored because of addiction, because of family situations, because of divorce, because of political affiliation, because of mental illness. Think of all the years the church showed partiality because of race. At its core, partiality is an issue because we are using worldly metrics and we are fundamentally rejecting the image of God within the other person. I have a few reasons why I believe that we are partial. And it's my prayer that if you hear one of these and you feel convicted, you would know that God's mercy towards you is that conviction. If we hear this and you feel conviction, it is God's mercy. Turn towards Jesus if you feel that. He is faithful to forgive. He's also faithful to redeem that sin. But here's a few reasons, reasons why I think we are partial, or at least reasons that we justify it. One, um, and I got a few fancy words for you, utilitarianism is a fun one. The idea that your relationship with others only exists to fulfill your needs or to further your needs. So on a Sunday morning, do you go out of your way to interact with those who can fulfill your material, emotional, uh, emotional or social needs? If this is the case, you are rejecting the image of God and others, and ultimately you are rejecting how God chose to love you. Because God didn't choose to love you because you had anything you could offer. He chose to love you because it is who he is. It is his character. 
Maybe it's pragmatism, right? So utilitarianism, pragmatism. Here's another fun word. Similar in concept to the previous point, but you believe that the ends justify the means, and so you will do whatever, you, whatever it takes to get the best possible outcome. Right? We all do this in one way or another. We oftentimes say, well, I will do X, Y, and Z knowing that this is what the, um, the final outcome will be. The problem with that is that you aren't in charge of the ends. God is. The other problem with that is that God has actually told us how to live out the means. We are fundamentally rejecting that which God has called us to do. The last one. I don't have a uh, fun word for you on this one. But you don't like feeling uncomfortable. We enjoy our comfort. We enjoy feeling comfortable. We are drawn to that which is comfortable. We would rather gravitate towards those who we are comfortable with than those we are uncomfortable with. Again, I'm partially preaching this to myself because I don't like feeling uncomfortable. Right? We don't like stepping out into the unknown, but... Once again, God's in control of the unknown. We're called to step out into it. He's in charge. So here's the sad part. As we are reaching for these specific blessings, we oftentimes miss the true blessing. As we are rejecting the image of God in those others that we are being partial towards, we are missing the true blessing. James chapter 2 continues on, 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's the thing. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He takes the poor and makes them rich. He takes the wounded and he heals them. He takes the orphan and makes them heirs of his kingdom. He takes the widow and makes them a part of the bride of Christ. God chooses the poor of the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. Listen, if we want to see the gospel come to life in our communities, that's where we're going to see it. I, I asked my daughter, who is seven, about this passage. I told her, I'm getting to preach this weekend, Maggie. And she's like, oh, what are you preaching about? And I said, oh, James chapter 2, can I read it to you? And I read it to her, and she got really excited because she has a children's book at home that actually illustrates this exact passage. And she, she was like honest. She ran straight to the bookshelf, grabbed that book, and she's like, it's this one. I was like, yeah, it actually is that one. That's awesome. And I asked her the question. Um, I, was, I asked her what she thought about it. What did she think about um, this fact that the poor would be rich in faith? So why do you, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think it's upside down like that? And, and like children often do, they have just wisdom that we tend to miss out on. She goes, well, they don't have anything getting in the way of loving Jesus. And I was like, yeah, that's true. You see, when we are partial, we tend to reveal the things in our hearts that we are putting ahead of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, James, the other James, different James, James and John ask Jesus to sit at his right hand and his left hand in glory, saying that they were desiring the honorable seat. And Jesus replies this way, Mark chapter 10, 
verse 42 through 45, and I think we'll have it up on the screen here. And Jesus called to them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, in the eyes of the world, you're told to form and find your own identity. And God says, find your identity in me. The world says, go and find your truth. And God says, seek me and you'll find truth. The world says the rich get richer and God says it is the poor who are rich in faith. We are called to show no partiality because, quite frankly, we make terrible gods. When we play God, we look out for our own interests, but this is the exact opposite model that Jesus gave us. It's the exact opposite. Philippians 2, 4 through 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is this mind? That, that um, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is how God modeled his love towards us in humility. And this is how we are called to love others in humility, looking to the interests of others. Partiality is a sin that's not only committed on Sunday morning, so we, we can't act as if this is just a unique Sunday morning thing, but because James uses the term the assembly in his example, I'm going to continue on to hang on to that Sunday morning example for just a moment, okay? Um, so we're going to hang on to that for just a second. When you come into church on a Sunday morning, my question to you is your motive to be filled up? I know I've heard this expression before many times. I've even used it myself. But do you view Sunday morning worship, this time of gathering together with brothers and sisters as Christ is like a gas station where you just kind of like pull up at the beginning of the week, you get filled up, and then you kind of carry on with your week? What if instead of that, we looked at Sunday morning worship as an opportunity to give and give in faith? What if our motive behind coming to church on a Sunday morning was to give of ourselves, give of our time, give of our attention, give of our voices and song? What if, what if giving in faith was our motive behind worshiping together? I think a lot of it, I think, I think it would be a lot harder to be partial towards those who we are worshiping alongside if we thought of this time together is an act of giving rather than an act of being filled up. And, and, and don't get it twisted, right? Like, more often than not, we are more blessed when we give than when we receive, right? But oftentimes, we teach this, we take this teaching of Jesus that it is better to give than to receive, and we just kind of boil it down to a Christmas time saying rather than thinking about it as an all-encompassing teaching that we are supposed to model throughout the course of our entire life. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe it is better to give than to receive? We still have five more verses to get through, James 2, 8 through 13, but I want to make sure to recap really quickly before we move on. Christians are called to show no partiality, period. There's no qualifier. There are many things that can cause you to miss those who we are called to love. Money, social standing, addiction, mental illness, age, race, and many more. We are called to love people not for what they can offer us, but because they were loved by God despite having nothing they could offer him. The same way that you are loved by God despite having nothing you could offer him. We are both fully known and fully loved by God. Fully known. What he has done to you, he wants to do through you. That is a phrase that you might hear often, but it is so true. The way that he has loved you is the way that he is calling you to love others. So show no partiality. Love those around you well. Now, we could, we could end the sermon here, but James makes this connection of the law to partiality. James 2, starting in verse 8, says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fills, uh, fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think because of how we do earthly justice here, we oftentimes confuse it with God's law. I'll give an example. When Sarah and I bought our first house in Marinette, we had one garage. We had two vehicles, one garage. And if you live in Marinette, I'm not sure what the other um, rules are for parking on the street in the wintertime. I'm assuming other towns also have uh, rules against this. But if your car is left on the street overnight in Marinette past December 1st, you are going to get a ticket. <laughs> Someone's like, amen. I know how that feels. Um, it would never fail. We lived in that house for four years and I would get a ticket at least once a winter for those four years because I would leave my car sitting on the street after December 1st overnight. Always get a ticket. It was like 40 bucks a ticket. Just remember it well. Now, it would be ridiculous if I received that ticket for leaving my car in the street overnight, which I understand the rule, why it's there. I'm not complaining against the rule. I think it's a good rule. It's a good law. But it would be ridiculous if I received that ticket, I looked at that ticket, and I felt the full force of all the law of Marinette, Wisconsin in that one ticket. If I were to be convicted of the entire law of Marinette because I left my car on the street on December 2nd, 2019, that'd be ridiculous. But this is not the case when it comes to sin. This is not the case when it comes to violating God's law. 
James says, hey, great, you fulfilled the royal law of Scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which, by the way, if if you want to, if you have one of those Scripture journals and you want to write down really quickly Leviticus chapter 19, there's some really cool tie-ins to Leviticus chapter 19 that I'm not going to go into, but I want to encourage you, like maybe take some time to read through it and see the connections. But he goes, hey, you've, you've done it. Great. Loving your neighbor as yourself. You're doing great. However, if you commit the sin of partiality, you're guilty. And you're not just guilty of partiality, you're guilty of all of it. You are a transgressor. You see, all sin separates us from God, and all have sinned. There isn't a single one of us in here who has not sinned. This is partially why, not partially, this is, this is why partiality is such an egregious sin. Because if you, in here, if you have recognized that you have fallen short of the glory of God, if you have recognized your sin, if you've gone before God, then you recognize your own poverty before him. You recognize that you have nothing before God, yet you are seen by God as holy and righteous because of the work Jesus did on the cross. Romans 3, 23 through 24, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right? This is the good news we proclaim, right? If we say that we are gospel-centered people, this is the good news that we hang our lives upon, is the fact that even though we have sinned, even though we have rebelled against God, we have nothing we could bring to him. He condescended to his own creation, took on flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, paid the price we couldn't pay so that we could live as redeemed people. And this is how James is finishing off this section on partiality because the moment that we ignore that in other people is the moment we ignore the work that God has done within ourselves. Verses 12 and 13. He finishes it off saying, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs judgment. Mercy triumphs judgment. Speak and act and live as those who have been judged under the law of liberty. If you were to stand before the throne of God today and stand judged based upon your works, you would stand condemned. Yet we don't. When we place our faith in Jesus, we stand before the throne and we are seen as righteous because of the work he did upon the cross. The moment he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, is because we placed our faith in the one who did run the race well. 
You see, James can confidently tell the church, show no partiality because it is a direct pouring out from the mercy and grace that was shown to him. There are those who say that the the letter of James makes it really difficult to see the gospel. They say that James presents a gospel of works and you have to do this and you have to do that. And I think as we spend time actually praying through James and looking at what James is saying, it's the exact opposite. He's actually saying that it is because of this gospel of grace, it is because of the grace and mercy we have been shown, we are called to show that to others. We need to be a people who are marked by loving other people well. And loving other people well means using kingdom metrics to judge other people, not worldly metrics. We are called to see people as created in his image. It is the direct gospel of grace that we are saved. Not by what we do, but by what Christ did. And that is exactly what enables James to confidently say, brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you run the race. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Church, may we be a people who are marked by mercy and grace because of the mercy and grace we have been shown. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful that you gave us this letter because it is a reminder. It is a reminder that we need to find our faith totally in you. God, I pray that you would help us to feel convicted. God, that you would help us to see the areas in life where we are showing partiality. God, I pray that you would right now bring people to mind, bring faces to mind who maybe we have looked over because we've used worldly metrics to judge them. God, help us to repent of our partiality. God, help us cling tightly to your mercy. Father, I pray that you would use this church, these people, to show your mercy and love at home and in our communities because you have shown great mercy and grace to us. God, you are good. We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.